You're listening to a 58 Ember production. This week, we are discovering how NASA is helping Hawaiian farmers grow more food with AI, recapping some hilarious Uber Eat requests from 2023, and discovering how a new legislation would require alternative proteins to display the word imitation on their packaging. Welcome to Discover Ag, where food meets pop culture. I'm Natalie, a cattle rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I'm Tara, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And every week we are bringing you the top stories in the ag and food space that you need to know. And today we will be ending this episode with one of our great mini interviews with Dr. Brian from Case IH. So stick around for that. We are officially on the 24-hour countdown to Vegas. It's here. It's really here. So this morning at church, someone was like, when do you leave for Vegas? And I was like, tomorrow. And then I was like, oh my goodness, I leave tomorrow. Like I need to get home. I need to pack. And, and I say pack, I feel like I've been packing for three weeks and I'm not done packing yet. So I'm unwell, but that's where I'm at. Well, I'm very excited. So I will see you there. I'm very excited. I don't know what I'm wearing, but I'm super excited. I do have to get my stitches out of my ear before we leave tomorrow. So I feel like I have a little bit of nerves about that, but like excitement about going to Vegas. I'm like feeling all of the feels right now. When this episode airs, we'll actually be on our way back from Vegas. And I feel like us entering Vegas, the personalities we have right now will be very different from the energy and personalities we will be have leaving Vegas on the day this airs. Yeah, thankfully, we have a few days before we record the episode for the next week. Because I feel like if we got back and recorded, yeah, we'd be like such high energy today and potentially very low energy come the next recording. So we're going to recover for a few days and then we'll record and like be back to normal. But we have so many fun things planned. We have the actual rodeo, which I have been to NFR, but I have not attended you know, the actual rodeo. So I'm excited to see that. We have some booth visits at Cowboy Christmas. We're going to be interviewed on stage with RFDT for the Cowboy Channel. So lots of fun things coming, you guys. All right, getting into our articles for today, we're going to start by thanking our sponsor, Case IH. Case IH isn't just built by farmers. It's sold, supported, and serviced by them too. The men and women at your local Case IH dealerships understand what it takes to overcome the challenges of farming because they do it every day, just like you, which means they're the right people to help you find the equipment you need. Visit builtbyfarmers.com to learn more. Case IH is built by farmers. And we, as I mentioned in the beginning, will be interviewing one of those fabulous farmers and employees of Case IH at the end of this episode. uh, And it's going to be a great one filled with so much great information. So stick around. Yeah, I got a little emotional on it because at the end I was wrapping it up and it dawned on me that we were, you know, three young females talking about soil health and tillage. And I just thought it was really cool. So be sure to tune in. Allison is a wealth of knowledge. And if you're interested in things like soil health and um, tilling and farming from that aspect, I do think you'll gain a lot of, of information from hearing Allison speak. Also, before we dive into the articles, I want to remind you guys of our newsletter. Our weekly Club Discover goes out every single Monday. You can sign up in the show notes. We give basically our favorite discoveries that we found that past week. So Tara gives two and I give two. And it ranges from everything we are listening to, watching, reading, eating, cooking, baking, buying. It's a wide assortment um, of just all of our favorite things. So we're really filling it with high value for you guys. So go sign up and spend not only Thursdays with us on the podcast, but also Mondays with us in our inbox. And with that, let's dive into our articles. All right. The first article to discover this week, headline, NASA is helping Hawaii farmers grow more food with AI. Through the use of machine learning and satellite technology, 
researchers are working with Maui farmers to address food security and rebuild local agriculture with a focus on local tradition. So several months back, I actually listened to a fascinating podcast about agriculture in Hawaii and its history and how it's changed over the years, how they used to have a very like thriving agriculture community and it has definitely like declined. So I was really excited to cover this because I just was very interested in it after. And so this kind of actually continued on some of the same themes. And I think the one that stuck out to me the most in both the podcast and this article is about Hawaii's food sovereignty. So Hawaii imports between 85% and 90% of their food. So it's just crazy. And you think about the cost to bring all that food to an island. They really spend a lot on food. Yeah, it really stood out to me, the percentages of how much they import. I remember listening to a podcast. Oh, it was, you know, shortly after, well, a decent time after COVID, I guess, but they were living in Aruba and they were talking about the same thing about how much they import their food. And the host was saying she had a moment of pure panic during COVID realizing, am I going to be able to food feed my family? Will there be food to source? And I remember when we were in Puerto Rico last year, it was the same thing. They import so much of their food and coming from our American, you know, mainland point of view where we, I feel like are very food secure. I've never really put myself in the shoes of being in a place that imports so much. And I think it's a, it's a really big deal. I can see why after COVID Hawaii was having this point of view change where they're like, this isn't going to be sustainable. Like this cannot continue. Yeah. And I love that this article talked multiple times though about like the cultural and like societal aspects of agriculture for Hawaiian farmers, because they have a couple like Hawaiian words that I thought were really cool. And I'm going to absolutely butcher this, but basically like agriculture is more than a profession. It's like their responsibility. And I think it's, did you read these? Do you have any idea how to pronounce them? Are you going to like bust out your (laughs) Google No, this is all you. Go ahead. Okay. Kuliana. I think is maybe and it means responsibility. It's like your responsibility to the land. But they also have an ancient concept of aloha aiana. And that is a love and responsibility stewardship of the land. And I just I felt like both of those things were um, I don't know. I just think when we talk about agriculture and food, we often leave out like the cultural aspect of it. And so I'm glad that was so well highlighted here. Yeah, they did highlight what we talked about, food security and then food sovereignty a bunch. Going back to the security portion, you had mentioned that they you know, um, import roughly 90%. The other staggering statistic in this article is that they allocate less than 1% of their own annual budget to their agriculture sector. So you have major disproportionate going on there between the investment. And again, I can see there's some really great sound bites we can get to of why they're like, this has to change. And NASA swoops in and says, okay, we'll help you out. Yeah. And I think when you think of NASA, you don't always like think of agriculture, uh, but this is kind of where they're able to like meet in the middle with like technology and innovation and then agriculture. And so that's what NASA is really stepping in to do is to help them have a more sustainable food system. And I feel like when you think, I mean, we know that when people say sustainable, often you think of environmental, but the way they talked about it was so much more than just environmental. One of the interesting facts, though, about agriculture in Hawaii is their main crops or their main exports are sugarcane and pineapple. And so there is a bunch of different crops, and maybe we can list them off. I'll scroll down. I have it in my notes, that Hawaii provides 100% of U.S. products for six major crops. And they are macadamia nuts, coffee, bananas, papayas, taro, and guayabas. Is that how you say it? 
Natalie's making fun of me. So she's Natalie's laughing. So I'm guessing I said something wrong in there. No, I just I feel like every episode there's a word that you and I don't know how to say and we struggle <laughs> every single episode. Like one day we'll show up as your host and we'll just have mastered the English vocabulary, I guess. But not today, you guys. Not today. Maybe we needed to discover a dictionary where we add words we don't know and we find someone that can like read them to us and tell us what they mean exactly and how they're pronounced. So going back to NASA, I think I had no idea that they had two like sister companies. It's called NASA Harvest, which is their global food security and agriculture consortium. And then they also have NASA Acres. And I just thought that was so cool. And I don't know how I've never heard of that before, but that is essentially the two, I guess, portions of NASA that is going to be working with Hawaii to implement these technological advances. And the big goals of it is to create a a data dashboard using satellite imagery and artificial intelligence that will then be fed by on-ground data. So there's kind of two two components. Like NASA is going to be using this satellite imagery from above. They're going to be collecting all that information for like cropping and imagery. And then they're also going to be doing like on the ground measurement by direct observation where they're like interviewing the farmers and then combining those together to have information for farmers, community leaders, and policymakers to basically monitor, analyze crop conditions, and hopefully, you know, take care of this food insecurity that the the um, Hawaiian islands is facing. Yeah, they want to be able to like predict gaps in like the local food supply system and then like issues with access too. So it's like, I feel like it's like a very full circle model. Like they're not just focusing on one part of agriculture. Like it's in the entire food system from like the soil to the table. So it's really kind of, it's crazy cool. I feel like what NASA is doing, which I mean, makes sense. Some of the cool things about the farms in Hawaii is it is a lot of small scale farms. So there's a, over 7,000 farms and they are often located on like very marginal land. So we talk about marginal land being good for a lot of times like grazing animals. And in Hawaii, it's very like sloped or rocky terrain. So they're not really able to use like large scale equipment to cultivate the land. And so there's, it's a lot of labor intensive agriculture happening in Hawaii. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was reading a different article that talked about how nearly half of Hawaii's lands are um, designated for agriculture, but only a fraction are used for farming. And like you said, part of that is that arable, non-arable conversation. There's also a lot that's allocated to conservation. There's a lot to allocated to grazing. And so it's just really interesting. I could see why, also having visited Hawaii, I could see why this satellite imagery could be such a big benefit to them helping to figure out like how to best utilize the lands they have to be more productive. Yeah, it will be able to tell you where crops are like not thriving, uh, what types of diversified crops will be good for the land, uh, invasive species, like where those are taking over. They said that this could have actually helped um, with the Maui fires, the wildfires, because they would have been able to identify where invasive species were growing, where they were taking over and where they were like at risk of like you know, obviously starting a wildfire. And then this model, I think the last thing I'll say about it is that it also helps farmers find economically viable methods for farming. So again, going back to that labor and just all those cost inputs, how can they actually be economically viable while creating like a thriving agriculture community? I personally really loved this article. I felt, I feel like a lot of conversations about AI right now can be pretty negative. And I thought this was such a cool feature and highlight of how AI could be used in like a really beneficial way. Uh, One last fun fact about Hawaii before we move on is Hawaii's macadamia nut industry is the second largest in the world and it produces 45% of the world's macadamia nuts. 
So right when I graduated from college or a year after I worked at a pretty small hospital and um, there was our manager and then there was me as a staff pharmacist and then another staff pharmacist and we kind of like alternated and she was Hawaiian. And so she was gone and she went on vacation and she brought back (laughs) a box of macadamia nuts for me and then our boss. And I do not like macadamia nuts. And um, she like left them on my desk and I like had one, you know, and then pretty soon, like, you know, me, the whole box is gone. Right. You know? And so, <laughs> um, we like, we were opposite of each other. So we never saw each other too much on ships, but like one of our crossovers, we were talking like her, myself and the, bo- my boss. And she, I had mentioned or like said, thank you for the present or whatever. And she's like, oh yeah, do you like macadamia nuts? And I was like, oh, well, they're, they're not, I don't remember like exactly what I said, but somehow I alluded to like, they're not my favorite, you know? And my boss was like, yeah, well, it did stop you from eating your whole box. So I think you really <laughs> like them. <laughs> Oh, yes. (laughs) That's the most Natalie story ever. Okay, before you get us into our next article, I want to thank a couple of sponsors. First, we are about one month away from the American Farm Bureau Federation annual convention. This amazing convention is held this year in Salt Lake City. Natalie mentioned Puerto Rico. We were there last January in Puerto Rico for the American Farm Bureau convention, but now we're headed to Salt Lake City, January 19th through the 24th. Their keynote speaker will be a best-selling author and former associate athletic director of student counseling at the University of Michigan, Greg Harden. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but Harden counseled more than 400 student athletes who went on into careers in football, baseball, basketball, ice hockey. He shared his counseling expertise with seven-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady, Heisman Trophy winners, as well as 120 Olympic athletes, including Michael Phelps. You can also, if you, you know, catch the keynote. You can also catch Natalie and I on stage at American Farm Bureau. We will be starting on Saturday with a live recording of Discover Ag. And then on Sunday afternoon, you can catch Natalie at the As Seen on social media, Farm to Fork in Action. And then finally, you can find me on Monday morning at the intersection between farmers and companies within the supply chain. We had such an amazing time at this conference last year. I'm and I went the year before in Atlanta. This is just like becoming a year yearly tradition for me, and I'm so excited to be going again. So make sure you register using the link in our show notes and type in code Discover when you register for some free merch at the registration desk. Next sponsor I want to thank is Wagbar. Thank you to our sponsor, Wagbar. Wagbar is 100% American Wagyu beef snacks. These beef snacks are perfect for that afternoon snack or to have on hand in your car for a hungry kiddo or when traveling. Wagbar has lots of great flavors, and this high-protein snack is also low ingredients, which we love to see. But my favorite thing actually about Wagbar is that it is beef with a purpose. Since their start, Wagbar has donated cases of beef snacks to Iron Gate, which is a nonprofit dedicated to feeding the homeless in Tulsa, Oklahoma, near their main ranch. Meat normally requires refrigeration and has narrow expiration windows, but the Wag Bar is shelf-stable and versatile. So you can go to our show notes again and find the link to mywagbar.com. And again, use our code DISCOVER to get yourself a discount on your order of Wag Bars. All right, diving into the second article to discover this week, headline from don't put it in a circle container to it's for my cat. These were the best Uber Eats requests of 2023. So this is essentially a review put out by Uber themselves. It was the 
2023 annual cravings report. They've done this for about five years in a row now. And it's kind of just like a snapshot of the most popular and most unusual delivery requests. And I have to say, I thought it was kind of fun and interesting to read through, especially since I have never ordered from Uber Eats. That's so funny because that was my opening thing, wasn't it? Their quote was, in a time when you can order almost anything and have it delivered right to your door. And I was like, hey, Natalie, how's that Uber Eats working out for you in rural Nebraska? I will say I use Uber Eats pretty frequently when I travel, but my sister is like a delivery fanatic. Like granted, she lives in San Francisco, but I swear she will be like on vacation and I'll be like, man, I wish I had, I don't know, a Chardonnay. And it's like, she's like, oh, 15 minutes later, there's like a bottle of Chardonnay delivered and she's added on like four other things along the way we need. And so I feel like once you get in the habit of doing it, you become very like reliant on it. I will say that is you for me because you're definitely more exposed to it than I am. So when we are traveling together, that is me saying, oh gosh, I wish like we would have picked this up or I need this. And you're like, oh, well, we'll just do this. And I totally always forget because I am so far removed from it. That when I'm around you, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. We can. I'll never forget the time you told me that Amazon could even deliver in the same day. I was like, what? What? What is going on? Yeah, I feel like there's been a few times I like ordered you Torchy's tacos when we were in Fort Worth one time. One time we needed some weird like wire for a mic. And I was like, oh, I think Amazon, I'm sure there's Amazon same day delivery. And sure enough, it like showed up. Um, So it is so crazy. So some of the most popular items this year for them to order were toilet paper and hot sauce. Uh, So obviously toilet paper being one of the highest on their list of non like edible products. And then hot sauce. Apparently Americans were loving the spice this year. That was like everywhere. I loved reading through, they had two sections. They called it the Midnight Munchies and then a Mind Your Manners. And I want to highlight them because we might have people tuning in from some of the locations. And I think it'd be fun for discos to hear their city or university shout it out if they are. So for Midnight Munchies, they were basically um, tallying the most late night 12 to 4 a.m. orders on Uber Eats. And Penn State took the lead once again. So they're a back-to-back winner, I guess. And followed by the University of Iowa. I'm sure we have some Iowa fans listening. University of Illinois and Texas A&M University. So I don't know what that says about those universities, but you guys are ordering it up 12 to 4. And then the Mind Your Manners. I'm not going to lie. I was actually a little shocked by one of the cities that made it. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) why, but I was. The most polite cities are San Francisco, Richmond, Detroit, Bakersfield, and Charleston, they say please and thank you the most in their instructions. And then customers in Olympia, Washington, Asheville, North Carolina, and Bismarck, North Dakota, shout out to the North Dakotas. They're the most generous tippers in the U.S. It's so crazy to see all those like statistics. I'm not gonna lie. I don't know if I've ever said please or thank you. I don't do a ton of custom orders, though. I feel like I just like I'm like, Oh, yep, right off the menu. But I was like, Oh, I didn't think about that. I should start saying please and thank you, like in my delivery messages. So I'm absolutely going to do that. Also reading that it always blows my mind how much data we're collecting all the time that they're putting this out. They're tracking these orders. Like I just forget how much data is at the fingertips of a lot of companies in today's society. It's really crazy the things they have on us. 
I know we've talked about this before, like with the Ozempic uh, episode that we did, like how Walmart's tracking like buying habits compared to like maybe what prescriptions you're getting, like quote unquote Ozempic. So it is kind of wild. I'll never forget that like it, I someone told me this, like if you're using an app and an app is free, like you're the product. And I know you pay for Uber Eats, but like there's still so much that they are collecting on you. It is wild. Um, can we talk about some of the wild food combinations? So they saw an uptick in cottage cheese orders, but the one that really caught me off guard was cottage cheese with mustard apparently was having its moment this year. So what made me really interested about this section of the report was I wasn't shocked to see cottage cheese because I was like, oh, that went viral on TikTok. So there's obviously this correlation between people trying to order this product to make the recipes. But then everything else, it made me wonder, did that all go viral on TikTok too? And I never sat down to research that, but I think that would be so interesting to see. The top five most ordered items included pad thai, miso soup, California rolls, uh, burrito bowl with cheese, wings with ranch. So some of those are expected and some I feel like we're not for me. Yeah. Some unlikely duos was steak with jelly and butter and pickled onions. That sounds like quite the combination. But my favorite was actually the food and alcohol pairings. The most ordered food plus alcohol was a ribeye steak with vodka and then a cheeseburger with a margarita. I don't know exactly who's ordering those two things, but they sound like we could be really good friends. Yeah, I was just really confused at this part. Are they like tracking across all restaurants? Was it specific restaurants? Like I didn't get it. I don't I don't know. I think it was like just most ordered items, but the most ordered item ever is french fries. Hmm. Let's dive into my favorite part, which is the comments people wrote. So they called it extra, extra, eat all about it. And there were, you know, this is actually one of my favorite things to do is to like read Amazon reviews because people leave some hilarious stuff. So there was some off the wall comments or some funny comments. Um, I love the one that was about for the cat. Uh, my cats think your chicken is cracked. So this is for them. There was one about a sauce sauce on everything i mean it literally drowned my food in that amazing nectar nectar Nectar. yes i think that's so funny (laughs) the craziest one for me was put it in a box instead of a circle container i refuse to eat any food presented in a circle container please don't ruin my meal for me (laughs) can you imagine (laughs) taking the time to write that uh extra cheese sauce please i'll pay for it i'm also drunk as fuck so if you look it up you'd make me the happiest drunk girl ever (laughs) I thought there was a cute one. I wonder how old this guy was because he put, could you please write a note on the coffee saying, hope you're having a great day, Jojo. I'm proud of you with a heart like emoji. It's for a girl I really like. Thanks a lot. I'm like, I feel like (laughs) I don't know if that boy is 13 or maybe 25. Like, I feel like either way, it's probably like that is the insight to a guy's brain. The last thing I'll mention that I thought was really crazy is no matter what the time of year is, the most ordered dessert is apple pie. And they delivered more than 2 million apple pies. And that seems absolutely insane to me. I would not I would not have expected that. All right, moving on to my favorite thing to probably get Uber Eats to me, 
wine. So our next sponsor is Enchantment Vineyards. This vineyard and winery is located right here in New Mexico. Enchantment Vineyards is family owned and operated by two sisters and their husbands and their families and parents. They produce about 30,000 bottles of wine a year, producing Chardonnay to Crimson Cabernet to lots of different blends and so much more. Everything they put into the bottle is hand harvested. So, so much care and attention goes into growing and harvesting the grapes. In today's market, wine producers are not required to put additives on wine labels. But Enchantment Vineyard knows that great wine is from great grapes, not additives. So when you drink Enchantment wine, you know there is nothing in that bottle except phenomenal grapes. If you are looking for a great wine for a holiday party or a perfect gift for that hard to shop for person, order a case of Enchantment wines. Click the link in our show notes and use the code DISCOVER20 to save you 20% off your order. Again, use that code in our show notes and use the code DISCOVER20. And also we had Megan, one of the co-owners on our podcast on November 16th, episode 125. So if you want to learn more about their wines and what goes into them, go give that a listen. All right. Diving into the last and final article to discover this week, headline, Real Meat Act Reintroduced by Senator. So U.S. Senator Deb Fisher, who's actually here in my state, Nebraska, go big red, decided on November 14th to reintroduce the Real Meat Act, which stands for the Real Marketing Edible Artificials Truthfully Act. This legislation stated that it would clarify the definition of beef and pork for labeling purposes by requiring alternative proteins to display the word imitation on their packaging. Every time I read the word imitation, it's all I can think about is like cheap sushi restaurants where it's like imitation crab and the crab is spelled with a K instead of a C. Oh. <laughs> and I'm always like, hmm, I wonder what that is exactly. Like, what is imitation crab? And then I order it and carry on my merry way. But like every time I saw the word imitation in this article, that's all I could think of is like, maybe they need to do like beef, but do like B-E-E-P-H or like somehow mm-hmm. it's like smell different. Just like crab where you're like, okay, it's not real crab. Good to know. Glad it's noted. But if you want to order it, order it anyway. So this is actually the second time she tried to push this through another time or there was a different version of it back in 2019. So I think it's interesting always when you get legislation like this, where they're like trying to repush acts, like what did they change from the first time? Will it go through this time? Like what needs to change for it to go through? I always find that really interesting. Yeah, one of her quotes was that this was to protect against deceptive propaganda of plant-based protein products that deliberately confuse consumers by mimicking beef and pork. And to say beef is defined like by, I don't know, if I think it's FDA as flesh of cattle or edible products produced in whole or in part from beef. And then the term pork is defined, you know, obviously very similarly. Yeah, no, the bill is trying, I think, to put in those definitions. So that is how the bill would define beef and pork versus the alternative proteins. Oh, thank you. Thank you for clarifying. She is getting support from U.S. Cattlemen's Association, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and then other people local in Nebraska. So not really surprising who's like supporting this bill. This is obviously on like a federal level, but then on a state level, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, he signed legislation. Oh my goodness, that's a hard word for me today. Legislation in June requiring specific labeling for meat alternatives and cultivated meat products. 
which again, like this is not surprising. I feel like maybe which states, which representatives are kind of like going after this, who's supporting it and where it's getting passed. I think personally, I would rather see it be like a federal order of like the same across the board versus like each state kind of like piecing together what their proposed legislation is. Absolutely. I think that's probably crucial, actually. I will say dairy has been fighting this for years, decades. So I'm kind of like, good luck (laughs) and pork people like welcome to the fight, Um, which is just kind of crazy. So I feel like every time dairy talks about this, it, it doesn't go well for us. It ends up being a very much a conversation of like, we are the big bad dairy industry and we are trying to like be mean to the little tiny plant based companies, which makes me laugh because if you look at who owns all the different plant based like for milks, for example, or even plant based like proteins outside, it is not like little tiny like startup companies. Danone is the largest owner of the largest plant-based milk. That's a massive company. And so it's like, no, it's not, I don't know, like dairy against whoever. It's kind of just like requiring accurate labeling. Well, dairy recently lost this battle again, right? Yep. We just lost it again. That their argument was that like consumers are not confused and that they know what it is. And like, similarly, I wonder if beef and pork are going to face like similar trials and tribulations with this. It's interesting you said that because one of Fisher's quotes was, it's time to end the deceptive propaganda of plant-based protein products that deliberately confuse consumers by mimicking beef and pork. And I just don't know. Natalie was not paying attention. I read that quote at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. We're really hammering it home for the listeners. Woo! (laughs) I just think it's so interesting diving in on the deceptive propaganda and deliberately confusing. I think there's two viewpoints to this. I don't know if that's intentionally what they're trying to do. Like, I would argue that I also agree. I don't know if consumers are that confused. But then I have seen quotes, videos, and I'm like, maybe consumers actually are that confused. Like, I can't figure out where I fall in that conversation of, is this really needed? Is this taking advantage or, or not? I agree. I like I feel the same way. Sometimes I'm like, I think people that are wanting to buy plant-based, they know they're wanting to buy plant-based. But I have seen some crazy things out there of what consumers say or think, and they're not totally sure. And so in their defense, I think accurate labeling is really important. Some of the differences, so dairy was going up against FDA to say there already actually is legislation for dairy saying that this is what it is. We were asking FDA to enforce Enforce their already existing legislation and we lost that battle. Whereas beef is trying to get new legislation introduced. I do want to hop over the pond really quick because in the EU, they already have like solved this problem. They have things already in place that you cannot label like milks or yogurts or beef or any of those things those words unless they actually come from a mammal or from, you know, animal agriculture. Uh, One of the things that they do allow, though, is if it is like the shape. So you can call something a steak, even if it is not beef, Uh, but you cannot call it like beef. And so just some differences there. And so it's kind of crazy to me because like, for example, on the plant-based milk, they actually have to have different bottles and labels here in the United States than they do in the EU because they aren't allowed to call it milk in the EU. Yeah, it's always fascinating to get in that conversation, too, of what (laughs) Europe is doing versus the United States. Yeah, I do really. 
I like kind of looking. I mean, I don't always agree with the EU, but it's just fascinating to see how we approach things so differently. I will say the USDA recently approved two companies, and we've talked about this before, for lab-grown meat, a lab-grown chicken, and they are allowed to be called cell-cultivated chicken. That's what was ultimately decided for their labeling for lab-grown meat. Which does not sound appetizing at all. Oh, my goodness cell cultivated chicken really i mean it's some great alliteration going on there with the c's but as far as appealing not my favorite this is why politics aren't exactly my favorite because while i agree with this introducing this act and i would love to see you know i don't i'm not as familiar with what europe is doing as you are but I would love to see, you know, some well thought out plan put into place here in the United States that does distinguish between the two, which whether that's a labeling or like maybe you mentioned it's in different shapes or whatever that looks like. I would love to see that. But I think it's so important how we present the bill for it to be passed and the verbiage used. And that's why I pulled out that quote from Fisher, because I don't think coming at it from that angle is going to work for us. And it's really frustrating because at the end of the day, it's the same at the end of the day, you're trying to get through the same problem solved, right? So it shouldn't matter how you talk about it, but I don't think it'll get passed if we come at it the same way, also judging off what happened to dairy. So it's like, we, I think we just have to package it differently. And that's really frustrating to me. I agree. I think her tone in that was not the best. Um, and you just weren't going to like appeal to people, I don't think on the level you need to with like how she phrased it. I am like, can we, can pork, beef, chicken, dairy, like all get together, hire a PR team and like go at this together. I think this is where ag is like so divided and it's not good. Like we need to come together. And it's not that I even want to like bash plant-based milks or plant-based alternatives because those are made with like agriculture products too. But I am a pretty big stand on accurate labeling. And to me, that's really where this falls. It's like, I do think this is valuable. I think in a world where consumers have asked, you know, milk producers if there's gluten in their milk, I think accurate labeling, which I know like labeling is you and I's soapbox that we are like going to die on, our hill we're going to die on. But in my mind, this is actually a label that makes sense. It is literally telling people what is in the product or what is not. I agree. And I think it's interesting you mentioned how, you know, this she was getting support from U.S. cattlemen's like NCBA. And going back to what you just said about agriculture, I always find it so interesting in beef articles when we have to pull out the organizations that are supportive of it, when you would think, shouldn't all of beef be supportive of this? You know, so if it just blows my mind how we can be divisive on things like this. And like you said, that's not just beef. Like that would be coming together with chicken and pork and all the different animal proteins to push this together through. I mean, even including milk. Like I think that's what's needed from the agriculture community if we're going to get something like this passed. And then, you know, people are going to have to, I don't know, work together. Yeah, I think on the flip side, this is probably the last thing I say is, you know, if I was a plant-based alternative, I feel like you are trying to promote your product by it being plant-based. But at the same time, I feel like they kind of want it to be a both and. Like they kind of want to ride the coattails of like beef and dairies, like good nutritional name, good nutritional values, like of how much nutrition is in those but want to also at the same time kind of like do a little bit of bashing on dairy and beef. And so it's kind of like, I feel like you can't have a both and here. Like it kind of needs to be like, you are plant-based. That's like what your product is offering to people. And you are different than beef and dairy or pork and chicken or whatever those are. You can't have your steak and eat it too. You can't. From wise words of Discover Ag. We'll, We'll close out with that today. 
As we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, do not go anywhere. We are going into a mini interview with Dr. Brian from Case IH. Dr. Brian is going to be talking to us really about soil health. And we're going to be talking about tillage from no-till to conservation tillage to conventional tillage and how farmers can really choose the best option for their operations. And it definitely would not be a Case IH interview without some talk about equipment, tractors, and technology. So today we are talking with research agronomist and soil scientist, Dr. Allison Bryan from Case IH. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Allison. Thank you. We are so excited to be talking with you again. This is our second time talking. And today we're going to be talking all about soil health and tillage, which I think if you right now are at all in like, I don't know, the ag sustainability world and even just general like climate impact, it seems like a lot of conversation is truly around soil health, soil management, what like carbon sequestration into our soils looks like. So I think that's probably the best place for us to start. Can you kind of talk about soil management and like why it's truly important to, you know, us as farmers and really the grower of like being the foundation for our seeds and our plants? Mm -hmm. So for soil management is is kind of what we're focusing in on right here. We have uh, a farmer who has all these uncontrollables and soil management, particularly tillage, is a way that he or she can control um, a little bit of that uncontrollable. So really important for for our farmer, basically, we're trying to get as much yield as possible. And so we want to have the best conditions. And so we're trying to enhance uh, the uniformity of that seed. So what's really important is the the temperature, the soil temperature and the soil moisture and the seed to soil contact. These are all things that we can impact with soil management. So we want to try to dry things down faster and we want to warm things up sooner. And that's a big part of why a a grower would be tilling. I just love that you mentioned control back into the farmer's hands. Because I think one thing that, uh, you know, we as farmers and ranchers do struggle with that makes our jobs, you know, fun and interesting and keeps us on our toes, but also stressful (laughs) um, and hard to manage is like you mentioned that lack of control. So it's really great that as you mentioned, tillage is one of those tools in our toolbox that kind of helps us approach our jobs with more control. Can you talk about reasons why a farmer would choose to till or no-till? I think sometimes conversation gets painted as a very yes or no, very black or white conversation when it comes to tillage. And I know personally, our operation has been no-till for a very long time, but we converted over 100 acres of dry ground into irrigated. And we absolutely had to till that first year and then even a little bit the next year. And so can you talk about how there's kind of like a spectrum of choices? Sometimes it changes, you know, it's not as black or white as I think sometimes people assume the conversation is. Absolutely. So there's a ton of different tillage options and why you're tilling is is going to be different for all different farmers. So it's not a, like you needed to, to to manage that residue. So there's all these different factors, residue management being a really big part. And that's kind of what I was mentioning with the warming up and drying down residue in general. It's left out there. When a farmer goes and harvests their grain, all this residue is left out there. All the rest of that biomass, that plant material, that is creating kind of like this mat mat covering the soil surface. So then in the springtime, there's 
it's preventing the sunshine to get down in there and warm things up and dry things down. And so residue management is a big part just as like a physical barrier, as well as it can carry uh, diseases into the next year. Uh, diseases are just pests in general can overwinter in that material. And so sometimes a farmer just wants to make sure that they're hitting that and, and getting it in direct contact with the soil as much as possible because it will help it break down sooner. Basically, microbes in the soil, they're lazy, so they want to be right in contact with that uh, material to break it down faster. Other reasons would be compaction. When we have to get out there with big equipment to actually harvest all of this material or even just um, sometimes planting it, but mainly when you're harvesting, it's lots of heavy stuff because you're taking out a lot of grain. You can actually change the density of your soil. So then when you go to plant your next crop, the roots don't want to grow in it. It's too dense for that uh, the roots to, to go through it. So compaction is an issue that a farmer can use tillage as an option to alleviate. And then there's just other simple things, like if it's all rutted up because there was, maybe it was just a little too wet that day, a farmer had to get out there, but there's these tracks all over, they could hit those tracks with some some tillage, as well as uh, weed removal. That's something that farmers can do without herbicide. They can use tillage to to rip out those those weeds, um, as well as, as a simple incorporation. They can incorporate their fertilizer and their herbicide with tillage too. So there's all these different things of why a farmer might be tilling. And I haven't even gone into the different types of tillage, but those are some of the reasons why. Yeah, those are such good reasons why, because as Natalie said, they're primarily no-till. I would say we classify ourselves as minimal till. And for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned, and you mentioned grain, and one of the reasons we're minimal till actually is because of silage and being able to get those trucks into uh, the field while it's still in the silage phase of corn harvest um, or wheat, you know, wheat silage. But I think that kind of gets us into the next thing I want to talk about is the method. So I know you were about to kind of talk about that. But what are the different options? Because as Natalie said, like, I think people think of tillage as like, you are either doing it or you are not when really there is a spectrum of different things you're doing. There is a spectrum of, as you mentioned, why you're doing it. But what does that actually look like? We've got conventional till and conservation or minimal till and then no till. So conventional till and conservation till are actually, they have this really strong definition. So to be conservation till, by definition, you have to have um, 30% residue coverage or more. So a farmer has to leave that much residue on the soil surface to be classified as conservation till. Um, whereas conventional till, you would have less than 30%. And basically, that's just two different intensities of tillage and, and two different mindsets of growers, because sometimes you need to do different things. Um, minimal till, conservation till, you'd be maintaining that residue. Maybe you're you're in a situation where you have some highly erodible areas, maybe you have some slopes or just uh, soil erosion. So you want to maintain as much residue as possible. So that could be your minimal till farmer and why they're doing it. Whereas conventional till, when I say that, it's uh, I'll, I'll get into that, but it's more of you're trying to to bury that mat of residue on the surface. So you're trying to knock out and bust out that compaction or both. And then you've got no-till, which is a great option as well if you don't need to till. And that's something um, sometimes it's only um, certain sequences of your crop rotation you're doing no-till. Like if it has, um, if it's a 
little bit hardier uh, plant for for example. Like if you have corn residue out there, a lot of times farmers will just plant directly into that without tilling because they know that the soybean following that corn in a very common crop rotation um, is a little, it's hardier and it can, it can stand to have that little bit rougher, more stressful condition. So no-till is basically what it says, you're not tilling and you're just maintaining everything intact. So those are the different types of tillage. And then can you maybe speak to, I know you, you know, touched on them briefly when you were explaining both of them, but maybe pull them out and just make it a little more clear for our listeners, like some of the benefits and pros to why a farmer would choose the conventional and then some of the benefits and pros as to why they would choose the no-till approach. And then maybe we could follow that up with kind of that intermediate area, that conservational approach that kind of Tara talked about. So for conventional tillage, that's where we're trying to get more residue buried, uh, potentially knocking out compaction. This one, a lot of the times, is where it's a farmer who is dealing with that really tight weather window in the spring. So they want to make sure it's uh, dry enough so they can get their equipment out there sooner or soon enough um, and then warm enough to to plant their plants to be successful. It's crazy how different it is in different locations. Like even hearing you say like, well, we want to, you know, remove some of the excess moisture. And here in New Mexico, I'm like, wait, there's moisture in the soil. Why would we want to remove that? Like we want to keep whatever moisture there is. And I think that's such a good reminder because it really is dependent. Like one tool, one system does not fit all in agriculture. Like you have to know your conditions, your soil type, and really like focus in on exactly what works for your operation. Because it is crazy. Like even what works, you know, I feel like right here where our farm is at doesn't always work for my dad who's 20 miles down the road because he has a completely different soil type. And so I feel like sometimes when we get in the mindset of like, you know, no till or like conventional till is, you know, not sustainable, you can like really limit yourself and really limit like what tools are available to your operation. And so it's important to remember like it's farmers are choosing like a combination of all of these on any given year in any different of their fields. And so kind of on that note, I know Natalie mentioned like diving in, let's go ahead and dive into kind of like the no till approach on the opposite side of the spectrum of like, you know, why would you choose that? And what are the conditions for choosing, Mm -hmm. you know, no till and some of the benefits for that? Okay, so we, yes, the opposite side of the spectrum, we went from conventional till where they have these really wet um, or cool conditions that they need to manage residue or manage compaction. Uh, Whereas in a no till situation, they're hopefully not in that it's drier there. They don't, they don't have to worry about that weather window because it has a different soil type. So maybe it's a little sandier or it's just in a climate that is drier. So you basically, if you're a farmer who is in that climate, you have this opportunity if it works for you. So you don't have weed pressure that you need ripped out. Um, And if you can go no till, that's where you can do it. And as you mentioned, if it's a situation where you need to conserve moisture, then you wouldn't want to be tilling or you'd want to be very selective of what you would do. Yeah, it's very like um, location yes. dependent too of kind of like what makes the most sense. Yes, because it's very um, weather driven and then soil type driven uh, and then your crop, the rotation that you're you're doing and, and then the, the mindset of the grower. And then no-till also, it can be about building organic matter. So if you have a situation where you actually 
for sure. Maybe you were in um, a more aggressive tillage situation and you are kind of coming to find out my organic matter is too low. I need to build it. Then then that's when you could shift to to a no-till and help build the, the, the organic matter. And I know that there are a lot of other reasons that play into tillage so far. We've talked a lot about kind of the soil, but there's like the equipment conversation I want to dive into a second. Before we do that, uh, we haven't touched on conservation tillage yet. So if maybe you want to briefly touch on that and then we can kind of move into some of the equipment conversation. Yes. So can, conservation till is our minimal till option. And this is that grower who wants to maintain as much residue as possible. Maybe they're in a situation where they need to build organic matter. And so that's where we're looking at options such as uh, vertical till or strip tillage. Vertical till is basically just a very flat blade. It's basically like a big CD. (laughs) And so it's just vertically cutting through. It's just creating a slot. And so it's doing very minimal soil movement. It's really designed to just do some slicing and dicing and maybe put a little bit of soil on the residue. So it's a farmer who, if they could, they'd be no-till but they still need to enhance their weather window or maybe they just need to make sure they're they're working towards breaking down some residue uh, because maybe they're dealing with some some diseases or some type of pressure that way. So it's very um, minimal. It's just slicing and dicing um, that type of option. You can also uh, vary the aggressiveness of vertical till too. It's, it's a really interesting option. It's shallower than just like the discs I was mentioning. Um, and then you've got vertical, or sorry, strip tillage. And so strip till, it's it's probably my favorite because it's this combination of 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 both. It's basically like a a row unit on a planter where it's just that area is is being tilled, and then a certain amount away from it, distance away from it. Um, is the next unit that's being tilled. So you've got this strip that's tilled and then a wider strip that's not tilled. So you've got no-till mixed in with tillage and that tillage is actually supposed to be creating, um, basically enhancing everything that you would with your conventional till just in that strip. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. It does require a little bit more um, I would say fine tuning, like a farmer needs to be a little bit more invested just to make sure it's done properly because you just have that strip to get right. Whereas you don't have the whole unit to to be like, oh, it buffs out, it looks good. But <laughs> you just have that strip needs to be done really well because a lot of times they'll run that in the fall and it needs to be ready to plant directly into in the springtime. So it has to be really quality and just that little strip and then the rest is not tilled. Yeah, that is definitely the category we fall into as the conservation till for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Keeping residue on our soil is important with the winds that we get here on the high plains. Um, And so having that residue can be so great, improving organic matter. But then sometimes tilling, like I said, whether it is because we're doing silage or whether we're incorporating, you know, we obviously use a lot of cow manure in our fertilizer. So incorporating that, you know, natural fertilizer into our soils. Um, And then like you said, strip till is like this great kind of combination that you get a little bit of the best of both worlds. And so I know that a lot of the reasons you talked about are exactly why we choose that is we we like that combination. 
Um, so kind of changing directions a little bit. I mean, we are talking with Case IH, so I feel like we have to talk about equipment a little bit. But I want to talk about the other factors that are impacting tillage decisions. And I will say, Daniel just got done demoing your guys' Magnum 380. And I feel like in his videos I was editing for you guys, he must have repeatedly said, like, it pulls like a dream. <laughs> it, it pulls so well. I mean, I was like, okay, we get it, Dan. Like, the tractor pulls really great. Um, but I think that goes into this exact conversation of like needing the right equipment and basing your decision off of what equipment is available to you is absolutely crucial. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that equipment tillage relationship. Absolutely. Um, so horsepower is a big deal. It's what, it's what you're alluding to is that you need to have enough power to pull this equipment. So if you're running uh, deeper with like the conventional till where you're actually ripping and you're trying to alleviate compaction, it's going to require more horsepower than if you were running vertical till, which is much more shallow. Um, I mean, usually that, that maxes out at four inches deep, um, sometimes shallower. So you're dealing with two very different horsepower requirements. And then strip till is tilling that strip, but you can run, I mean, some people run clear down to 10 inches in that strip. And it really depends on horsepower because sometimes they don't have the horsepower. So they're running at six inches. <laughs> so that one's a little unique because it, it really is based on the number of, of row units they have to the size of their tractor. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's the kind of the horsepower side of it. And you need to, to have the right tractor for your equipment. And at KSIH, you guys actually have a whole lineup of these different options for farmers when it comes to kind of like a tillage line, yes, correct? We have. So I think we've gone through how it's it's pretty complex. And what we offer is just this really wide array uh, in our product line for tillage. And so we've got, like I mentioned, the disc ripper with those big discs in the front and the ripper in the back. We have a Ecolo Tiger 875. That's our disc ripper, our disc ripper. And um, I've done research on it because that's what I do as the research agronomist. And so I've compared it against other disc rippers and we're doing a really good job. <laughs> so just throwing that out there. But um, so we have like we have our own <laughs> Ecolo, or our disc ripper, which is our Ecolo Tiger 875. Um, and then, um, like I mentioned, for vertical till, not only is it just lighter tillage, but we can also vary the intensity of that um, lighter tillage. So it's still vertical till. True vertical till is going with the direction that it's traveling. So it's very minimal, just creating a slot in, in the direction you're traveling. But you could also alter that with what we have is we call it our VT Flex 435. And it can actually adjust the aggressiveness of the vertical till. So it's still minimal till. Uh, it's still within that range, leaving at least 30% residue, but it can be a little bit more and it can vary on the go. Like you can, um, if you have bad ruts in one area, you might run a little bit more aggressive right there compared to areas where you for sure want to maintain as much residue as possible. You would go back to that true vertical till angle. So those are just a few of, of our options that we have. Yeah, I think one of the coolest things that I learned about Case IH, um, I guess it was like last fall, maybe like a year ago when we were planning for planting for spring planting, is how important it is for, you know, like Case IH to be up on 
all of the different sustainability like technologies because they play so much into what farmers are able to do and the efficiency of their operations. So for example, you know, we were planting a cover crop and one of the important things is having a planter that can plant multiple seeds uniformly across the field. Like you don't really necessarily always think about that from like when you think about like broad picture sustainability, you don't think about the multiple seeds going into the ground and how you're going to be able to do that. But that is exactly what you guys are always thinking about, always doing. And so I know you have the AFS Connect and the Soil Command. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, that type of equipment can really, and that type of technology can help farmers be more efficient, you know, the efficiency standpoint? Yes. So we have AFS Connect, which is what is connecting our tractors to a digital platform. So we've got our portal. You can actually be on your computer or your phone and you can see where this tractor is, what it's doing out there. Is it tilling? Um, And you can see the fuel level it has. So you can really monitor everything. That's AFS Connect part of it. And then the addition to that is what we call AFS Soil Command. So in particular, when we're talking about tillage, you know, the soil management side, we have the cool name Soil Command, where it's creating the ability to automate the tillage typically or traditionally, a farmer would have to get out and adjust their tillage tool. So I've talked a lot about a disc ripper and ours being the Akalo Tiger 875. Normally, you'd have to hop out and you would have to adjust every part of it. There's five different settings that have to be adjusted and some of them work off each other. It's time consuming and it's not easy to to change the depth of the disc, the depth of the shank, the depth of the rear level with the depth of the rear attachment, um, and then making sure all of it is still level with each other as you're traveling. So there's all these adjustments that you would typically have to hop out and fix. But now with um, Soil Command, it's automated. It adjusts by a push of a button in the cab. And so it's, I think, a pretty big uh, relief there for our farmer. It also gives us the ability to change on the go as they're actually tilling in the field if they want to alter something from there. And then it gives that ability to create prescriptions. So if you have these zones in your field that you know are heavily compacted and you want to run deeper there compared to over there, you can actually have it prescribed and just plug it in and it will alter for you. We will have to share some of the videos that Daniel did record in the tractor to our Discover Stories because it is quite impressive to see, um, you know, he shares about all of the different, you know, controls and how much you can change right from the cab. And it is crazy to see. Like, I told Daniel that it looks like he's in a spaceship when he is driving the tractor. So it is, it's really impressive, the technology that's going into these vehicles and how it's making like farmers' lives easier. Like I think Daniel says, you think about how many hours and hours and hours you spend in your tractor. Like if you can just make that a little easier, the comfort level a little better, just like you said, not getting in and out of the tractor to adjust every other setting, like you're able to do it, like the amount of time and energy and efficiency that that saves for the farmer is like truly like life changing, you know, like it really does impact so much of their life. Um, So thank you for sharing a little bit about that technology. I think kind of to close us out here today, um, you know, where do farmers go to learn more about this? I feel like I know I love our local KSI H dealership. I talk about that all the time on Discover. Um, but, you know, where do they learn more? So you can absolutely go to your local KSIH dealer and you can ask them, you can explain your details and what tool might be best for that. And then hopefully we'd have that product in the product line that we could show you. So definitely them, as well as if you want to 
do more research on your own, there's our the website, ksah.com, and it would have visuals and even more details uh, if, if that's your your thing. I'm a, I'm a reader, but <laughs> interacting is good too. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Allison. This has been a great conversation. I know that I personally know cattle a little bit better than I know crops. And so I always really enjoy sitting down with you and being able to expand my knowledge base when it comes to farming and the soil and all the things that, you know, a lot of farmers are dealing with every single day. And I have to give a shout out um, to Case because I think it's really amazing that we're three young women sitting here. I kept thinking of that kind of throughout the conversation. You know, Allison, I don't know your age, but I think you are much younger than Tara and I. And I, we talk a lot about on the podcast about how Case is farmers, you know, farmers representing farmers. But I think Case doesn't talk enough about how they have a lot of women staffed as well. And I think they do a really good job of including women in the conversation and really putting women in agriculture in the forefront. So it was really fun that, you know, three young women are sitting down talking about tillage and and farming. And um, I don't know if that would have happened, you know, X amount of years ago. So this was a really cool conversation, in my opinion. Absolutely. I loved it. I love I love getting to talk to you guys. So this is great. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.